Section 8 of The Charwoman's Daughter by James Stevens, Chapters 15 and 16. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 15 Next morning her mother was no better. She made no attempt to get out of bed and listened with absolute indifference when the morning feet of the next-door man pounded the stairs. Mary awakened her again and again, but each time, after saying, "'All right, dearie,' she relapsed to a slumber which was more torpor than sleep. Her yellow, old ivory face was faintly tinged with color. Her thin lips were relaxed and seemed a trifle fuller, so that Mary thought she looked better in sickness than in health. But the limp arm lying on the patchwork quilt seemed to be more skinny than thin, and the hand was more waxen and claw-like than heretofore. Mary laid the breakfast on the bed, as usual, and again awakened her mother, who, after staring into vacancy for a few moments, forced herself to her elbow, and then, with sudden determination, sat up in the bed and bent her mind inflexibly on her breakfast. She drank two cups of tea greedily, but the bread had no taste in her mouth, and after swallowing a morsel, she laid it aside. "'I don't know what's up with me at all, at all,' said she. "'Maybe it's a cold, mother,' replied Mary. "'Do I look bad now?' Mary scrutinized her narrowly. "'No,' she answered. "'Your face is redder than it does be, and your eyes are shiny.' I think you look splendid and well. What way do you feel? I don't feel at all, except that I'm sleepy. Give me a glass in my hand, dearie, till I see what I'm like. Mary took the glass from the wall and handed it to her. Hmm, I don't look bad at all. A bit of color always suited me. Look at my tongue, though. It's very, very dirty. It's a bad tongue altogether. My mother had a tongue like that, Mary, when she died. "'Have you any pain?' said the daughter. "'No, dearie, there is a buzz in the front of my head, "'as if something was spinning round and round very quickly, "'and that makes my eyes tired, "'and there's a sort of feeling as if my head was twice as heavy as it should be. "'Hang up the glass again. "'I'll try and get asleep, and maybe I'll be better when I waken up. "'Run you out and get a bit of steak, "'and we'll stew it down and make beef tea, "'and maybe that will do me good.' "'Give me my purse out of the pocket of my skirt.' "'Mary found the purse and brought it to the bed. "'Her mother opened it and brought out a thimble, a bootlace, five buttons, one sixpenny piece, and a penny. "'She gave Mary the sixpence. "'Get half a pound of leg beef,' she said, "'and then we'll have four pence left for bread and tea. "'No, take the other penny, too, and get half a pound of pieces at the butcher's for two pence,' and a two-penny tin of condensed milk, that's fourpence, and a three-haypenny loaf, and one penny for tea, that's sixpence haypenny, and get onions with the odd haypenny, and we'll put them in the beef tea. Don't forget, dearie, to pick up lean bits of meat. Them fellows do be always trying to stick bits of bone and gristle on a body. Tell him it's for beef tea for your mother, and that I'm not well at all. And ask how Mrs. Quinn is. She hasn't been down in the shop for a long time. I'll go to sleep now. I'll have to go to work in the morning, whatever happens, because there isn't any money in the house at all. Come home as quick as you can, dearie. Mary dressed herself and went out for the provisions, but she did not buy them at once. 
As she went down the street, she turned suddenly, clasping her hands in a desperate movement, and walked very quickly in the opposite direction. She turned up the side streets to the quays, and along these to the park gates. Her hands were clasping and unclasping in an agony of impatience, and her eyes roved busily here and there, flying among the few pedestrians like lanterns. She went through the gates and up the broad central path, and here she walked more slowly, but she did not see the flowers behind the railings, or even the sunshine that bathed the world in glory. At the monument she sped a furtive glance down the road she had traveled. There was nobody behind her. She turned into the fields, walking under trees which she did not see, and up hills and down valleys without noticing the incline of either. At times, through the tatter of her mind, there blazed a memory of her mother lying sick at home, waiting for her daughter to return with food. And at such memory, she gripped her hands together frightfully and banished the thought. A moment's reflection, and she could have hated her mother. It was nearly five o'clock before she left the park. She walked in a fog of depression. For hours, she had gone hither and thither in the well-remembered circle, every step becoming more wayward and aimless. The sun had disappeared, and a gray evening bowed down upon the fields. The little wind that whispered along the grass or swung the light branches of the trees had a bleak edge to it. As she left the big gates, she was chilled through and through, but the memory of her mother now set her running homewards. For the time, she forgot her quest among the trees, and thought only with shame and fear of what her mother would say, and of the reproachful, amazed eyes which would be turned on her when she went in. What could she say? She could not imagine anything. How could she justify a neglect which must appear gratuitous, cold-blooded, inexplicable? When she had brought the food and climbed the resonant stairs, she stood outside the door, crying softly to herself. She hated to open the door. She could imagine her mother sitting up in the bed, dazed and unbelieving, angry and frightened, imagining accidents and terrors. And when she would go in, she had an impulse to open the door gently, leave the food just inside, and run down the stairs out into the world anywhere and never come back again. At last, in desperation, she turned the handle and stepped inside. Her face flamed, the blood burned her eyes physically so that she could not see through them. She did not look at the bed, but went direct to the fireplace, and with a dogged patience began mending the fire. After a few stubborn moments, she twisted violently to face whatever might come, ready to break into angry reproaches and impertinences, but her mother was lying very still. She was fast asleep, and a weight, an absolutely real pressure, was lifted from Mary's heart. Her fingers flew about the preparation of the beef tea. She forgot the man whom she had gone to meet. Her arms were tired and hungry to close around her mother. She wanted to whisper little childish words to her, to rock her to and fro on her breast, and croon little songs, and kiss her and pat her face. Chapter 16 her mother did not get better. Indeed, she got worse. In addition to the lassitude of which she had complained, she suffered also from great heat and great cold, and furthermore, sharp pains darted so swiftly through her brows that at times she looked both dizzy and sightless. A twirling movement in her head prevented her from standing up. 
her center of gravity seemed destroyed for when she did stand and attempted to walk she had a strange bearing away on one side so that on striving to walk towards the door she veered irresistibly at least four feet to the left-hand side of that point mary make-believe helped her back to bed where she lay for a time watching horizontal lines spinning violently in front of her face and these lines after a time crossed and recrossed each other in so mazy and intricate a pattern that she became violently sick from the mere looking at them all of these things she described to her daughter tracing the queer patterns which were spinning about her with such fidelity that mary was almost able to see them she also theorized about the cause and ultimate effect of these symptoms and explained the degree of heat and cold which burned or chilled her and the growth of a pain to its exquisite startling apex its subsequent slow recession and the thud of an india-rubber hammer which ensued when the pain had ebbed to its easiest level it did not occur to either of them to send for a doctor doctors in such cases are seldom sent for seldom even thought of one falls sick according to some severely definite implacable law with which it is foolish to quarrel and one gets well again for no other reason than that it is impossible to be sick forever as the night struggles slowly into day so sickness climbs steadily into health and nature has a system of medicining her ailments which might only be thwarted by the ministrations of a mere doctor doctors also expect payment for their services an expectation so wildly beyond the range of common sense as to be ludicrous those who can scarcely fee a baker when they are in health can certainly not remunerate a physician when they are ill but despite her sickness mrs make-believe was worried with the practical common politics of existence the food purchased with her last sevenpence was eaten beyond remembrance the vital requirements of the next day and the following day and of all subsequent days thronged upon her clamoring for instant attention the wraith of a landlord sat on her bed demanding rent and threatening grisly alternatives goblins that were bakers and butchers and grocers grinned and leered and jabbered from the corners of the room each day mary make-believe went to the pawn office with something they lived for a time on the only capital they had the poor furniture of their room everything which had even the narrowest margin of value was sold mary's dresses kept them for six days her mother's sunday skirt fed them for another day they held famine at bay with a patchwork quilt and a crazy washstand a water-jug and a strip of oilcloth tinkled momentarily against the teeth of the wolf and disappeared the maw of hunger was not incommoded by the window-curtain at last the room was as bare as a desert and almost as uninhabitable a room without furniture is a ghostly place sounds made therein are uncanny even the voice puts off its humanity and rings back with a bleak and hollow note an empty resonance tinged with the frost of winter there is no other sound so deadly so barren and dispiriting as the echoes of an empty room the gaunt woman in the bed seemed less gaunt than her residence and there was nothing more to be sent to the pawnbroker or the second-hand dealer a postcard came from mrs o'connor requesting in the peremptory language customary to such communications that mrs make-believe would please call on her the following morning before eight o'clock 
Mrs. Make-Believe groaned as she read it. It meant work and food and the repurchase of her household goods, and she knew that on the following morning she would not be able to get up. She lay a while thinking, and then called her daughter. "'Dearie,' said she, "'you will have to go to this place in the morning and try what you can do. Tell Mrs. O'Connor that I am sick and that you are my daughter and will do the work, and try and do the best you can for a while.' She caught her daughter's head down to her bosom and wept over her, for she saw in this work a beginning and an end, the end of the little daughter who could be petted and rocked and advised, the beginning of a womanhood which would grow up to and beyond her, which would collect and secrete emotions and aspirations and adventures not to be shared even by a mother. And she saw the failure which this work meant, the expanding of her daughter's life ripples to a bleak and miserable horizon where the clouds were soap suds and floor cloths and the beyond a blank resignation only made energetic by hunger oh my dear said she i hate to think of you having to do such work but it will only be for a while a week and then i will be well again only a little week my love my sweetheart my heart's darling. End of section eight.